All right, and we are live. Good to go. Fifth guest episode here on Split the Difference podcast, and we have a guest that I've been looking forward to for a while now. We've been trying to get this together for like the past month, month and a half or so. I feel like I texted you a while ago wanting to get this together. So I'm glad we could. Of course. Yeah, man. So who are you? Who is Stinson Rogers? What what do you what do you do? Give us a little background about yourself. Gotcha. Uh well, Stinson Rogers, born, raised, and cornbread fed from the great state of South Carolina. Uh I am currently <laughs> in Washington, uh, DC. Uh, working as a healthcare communications consultant uh, for a company called Guy House. So cool, cool. So what is that? What exactly are you doing? What's your day to day look like? Uh, so right now, uh, I have a, we are we're on a federal contract right now um, with the VA. I can tell you this is public information. Um, <laughs> with the VA. That's good. Don't get me in trouble. <laughs> And uh, we're helping implement a new uh, electronic health record uh, at the VA. Um, so uh, a couple year, uh, a couple years ago or so, the DoD did this, and so the idea is that you can pretty much be born on an installation, um, go into the military per se, and then retire from the military, and all your health records will follow you through all throughout, right? Mm. Um, how it stands right now or before this whole thing came through, like you had paper health records from all over the place, say that you had TRICARE and you went to another doctor and they didn't have the same EHR that that, that company was working with. It was, so it was all messed up, right? So this right here is right. streamlined all that, right? Because uh, I know like when I left, uh, when I came off of uh, active duty status, they gave me a folder of all my health records. I was about that big. I still have this folder. It's in a safe back in my parents' place. But I mean, that was ridiculous versus them just giving me like a, a floppy disk or floppy disk. How old am I? Right. Uh, yeah, I was going to say a <laughs> floppy disk. <laughs> a floppy disk. You wouldn't even be able to use that. You wouldn't be able to find a computer like, uh, using a floppy uh, disk. eBay. eBay. <laughs> yep. <laughs> The external, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So basically the idea, I guess, is a streamline it, which I, it's awesome news because I feel like if there's I, – any time that I talk to a veteran or somebody that, like, works at the VA, mm-hmm. especially I've, – I've, I've got a couple friends that work at the VA that's here in Columbia – and they every single time are like, it is incredibly cumbersome. A lot of times it's very difficult to get stuff pushed through. Yeah. Like it's very slow. Do you feel like that's kind of your experience, I guess, in working on the backside of it now? But I mean, if you've ever used the, the VA as well. Um, I will say there are a lot of concerns at the VA that uh, we hope to be addressed soon. Gotcha. Good, good. Because I mean, at the end of the day, though, it's like, one of the most important things I feel like that you can provide mm-hmm. people that are no longer active duty, you know, people that are coming, you know, coming back from deployments or even people that are veterans that have been, you know, off of active duty for a very, very long time, like providing them quality health care should seem like the number one priority. Oh, yeah. Of you know, and there hasn't been I mean, the, the VA was created uh, decades ago. Right. And there hasn't been any real change or really updates to that. And so now with the recent conflicts that we've been involved in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, you know, and these veterans who are coming back with PTSD and all these other type of injuries and things of that nature, they realize that they weren't equipped to actually handle everything in which they thought. Right. Because up until then. Right. You were just handling, you know retired guy, you know, hurt hand or hurt back or something along those lines, right? Right. Now you have to deal with like the whole mental issues and things of that nature that that, that are going on in the VA. I don't think was well equipped for that at that at that time, right? Um 
it's a work in progress. Yeah. Uh, they're always making strides, uh, you know, in a lot of things because it is the VA, it is the government. A lot of the things that the yeah. VA would like to implement and would like to do and would like to streamline have to come from Congress, right? Um, so, right. Yeah. It's got to come downstream. Yeah. And uh, big government always makes things so much more efficient, right? Yeah, I tell you, you know. <laughs> Gotta love it. What so, um, so you mentioned earlier, uh, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you were active duty or that you were in the military before. What exactly were you doing? What did that look like? I know you were in prior to before you and I met, which I guess was like Don't six or Don't seven years ago. That was a long You're time atheist, ago. You're man. We met last year. We met last year. <laughs> right, 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 right. We're still young bucks. <laughs> So what all did you do in the military, I guess, prior to uh, when I would have met you in Columbia? Gotcha. Uh, so I joined right out of high school. Uh, I joined as a uh, military police officer. Uh, I did all of my training, or OSIT is what they called, one station unit training, all at Fort Linwood, Missouri. Um, so I was there for about five months in my basic and my AIT, which is advanced individual training, how to become a military police officer. Uh, and then I was stationed at Fort Stewart, Georgia, um, where I, uh, I worked the road there, or I was a what you would all see as a police officer now uh, on the streets patrolling and things of that nature. Um, I did that for about a year. I did that about a year before my unit deployed to Iraq. We were in Iraq for about um, eight or eight or nine months. Um, gotcha. And then once I came back from Iraq, <clears throat> I was looking for something new and new and interesting, right? And so uh, came down to, I think the big army wanted to send me, I can't remember where they wanted to send me, but I didn't know. They wanted to send me back to Fort Leonard Wood. And I was like, nope, that's not happening. So I called my branch <laughs> and I was like, hey, is there any other place that I can go besides Fort Leonard Wood? And they were like, well, Korea's open. I was like, I'll take it. <laughs> so yeah, went to Korea for a year. Uh, some of the best memories, best time of my life there. Um, the Korean people are, are, are great. Uh, kachi kachi da. Uh, that means we go together. Um, and uh, I would say I abused my time there in Korea, man. I really did. I made like the front page, like the newspaper. I was in like a Korean uh, commercial. For what? For what? <laughs> what were you doing? Um, so uh, according to what was told to me, um, fact check me here, please, people. Um, but up until that point, we had not had a uh, international army do a leadership school uh, with the, with the U.S. Army, right? And so when I, what they call a Leadership Course, or WLC, which is for me to be promoted to a sergeant or an E5, um, they brought in some of the uh, Korean Army soldiers, uh, and they trained alongside of us. And so uh, it was Sergeant, uh, Sergeant Yu. Um, he, led, uh, he led our squad in this operation that we had to like assault this mountain. And so there's a photo of me, him telling me to like halt here. And I'm pointing that I'm, uh, I'm uh, uh, scanning the, uh, the, uh, the berm up top, making sure that no one comes across. So it was, it's a pretty cool picture. That's awesome, dude. Yeah. Also, that is just classic. That is literally exactly what I would have expected for you to say <laughs> right now. <laughs> <laughs> that you would end up in the Korean news in your deployment there. <laughs> Not only that, I was in a Korean commercial. I was in a Smirnoff. I was in a Korean Smirnoff commercial. All right. Well, now I have to ask what happened there. What, how did you get involved in a Korean Smirnoff commercial? And are there Smirnoff commercials different from the ones here in the U.S.? Because most Smirnoff commercials in the U.S. are weird. Like I feel like every one of them are just like, what is going on here? 
Well, this one was a rap commercial. So I had no clue what was happening, right? So it was me and a couple of my army buddies. We were going to this uh, bar called Gecko's, right? And we're sitting there and this guy comes over and he's like, hey, we're filming a commercial. Would you guys mind being in it, right? So all of us are at the table. So, you know, we all signed this waiver. Yeah, sure, you can record us. Like, we're here, no big deal. Didn't think yeah. anything of it, right? So um, I go about my business. I, uh, I PCS, I come back to the United States. And like the day I land, I get all these messages on like Facebook, because uh, we didn't have Instagram then. Uh, Instagram was just not right. starting on Facebook. Yo, you're on YouTube. I'm like, I'm on YouTube for what? Like you're in this commercial. I'm like, what are you talking about? Send me the link. And they send me this link and it is a uh, uh, Smirnoff Korea commercial and it's a rap commercial. There's this guy who's rapping in Korean and then it's like two seconds of my face and I'm laughing and I'm like, oh, that's me. Oh. <laughs> Like, That's hilarious. like the entire table, like right in on me, like right here, right here. <laughs> they had to just pick you right here. Just right here. You're, you were probably having a great time. You probably weren't even paying attention. To I was it. not, I was not at all. Not even looking at the camera. I mean, I wish I had a haircut, but I mean, it, it's fine. You know? Yeah, it, it is what it is. You know, it, no harm, no commercial before, right? Right, right. Not a lot of people can say that. Not a lot of people. So what, uh, you decided to go in, I guess, enlist when you were 18. Yep. Why? What was the motivation behind it? So uh, growing up, my dad's in the military. Um, so uh, I kind of have that background as well. Um, I got into Liberty University and uh, my dad was just like, yeah, I don't think college is for you right now. Let's go talk to a recruiter. And, you know, I kind of trusted my parents mm -hmm. at the time. And uh, well, I mean, not at the time. I still trust my parents. Mom, dad, if you <laughs> didn't mean that, I still I love you. Love you. <laughs> I was going to really say, Miss <laughs> Rogers ain't going to be happy about that. She's like, well, I thought I raised him well. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I trust my parents. So, uh, when I talked to the recruiter and a couple weeks later, I raised my right hand and, uh, I was off graduated. I think I left like maybe a week after I graduated from high school. So gotcha. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a big transition there. Coming yeah. straight out of high school, going straight into some basic. Oh well, yeah. I remember the first phone call from home from basic training. I was like, dad, what the heck did you get me into? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He was probably just like, you're going to be all right. <laughs> I remember I remember going uh, on the bus. So you go to reception and you're there for about a week or so. And then like you go to like your actual like basic training unit. And so I remember we're on the bus and we have all these duffel bags and stuff. Right. And I'm next to the window and I just doze off. And all of a sudden I wake up and there is a drill sergeant who is literally climbing over bags, yelling at soldiers for looking out the window and for being asleep. I'm like, thank you, Jesus, for waking me up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Got a little bit lucky. Got a little bit lucky there. So what, uh, what was your experience like in actually being deployed? Right. I like, was it when you get there, is it, was it like what you were expected? Like, do you feel like your training prepared you for it? Was it anything and everything that you maybe had? And I don't want to say hoped, right? But what was what was your experience like? So if I'm being honest with you, it, it really didn't seem real. Like once I got there, it, it did not seem real. You know, I'm, I'm, I was only, what, 19, 20 at the time, right? I think I actually turned mm -hmm. 20 while I was in Iraq. Um, so like for me, it didn't really seem real, right? It didn't like... Um, it didn't, when I landed, like it didn't hit me until like that first night that we got um, uh, IDF for indirect fire, right? And I was like, oh, this is the, this is real. Like this is, this is what it is, right? And so at that point, like you got to grow up real quick, you know, um, you have to right. rely on your training and everything like that. But um, we did a lot of good when we were there. 
Um, so my platoon, we actually went out and we patrolled a lot. Um, uh, I forgot what's the name of the operation that they, that they called it. But well, pretty much what we did is we just went out and we patrolled and our job was to deter any type of violence or anything like that. Um, our platoon also, not my platoon, but our company also trained um, some of the uh, Iraqi police as well, right? So they would come uh, on our installation sometimes, we train them there, we go there, um, make sure they had everything they needed to do and things of that nature. Um, we also did a couple missions with uh, military intelligence. Um, and so um, that was kind of cool. Um, getting out there and seeing them do their thing, how they interact with people and, and, and things of that nature. But um, right. overall, I mean, it was, it, again, like it, it, it didn't seem real, you know? Um, yeah. Now that I look back on it now that I'm older, I look back on it, I was like, wow, you know, the Lord was really looking out for me. I mean, there are, I can tell you about situations where, you know, I was like, yo, what is this? What's happening? You know, um, yeah. <laughs> you're taking a shower. All of a sudden you get IDF. You don't know where it's coming from. You're just running for the bunker. Um, yeah. Or you're out and about and all of a sudden you hear gunfire and you're just like, where that's coming from. You can't really see anything. And you just kind of keep, you just kind of keep your head down and keep going, you know? So. Yeah. yeah. So when you're in a situation like that, where you have, you know, you have some type of indirect fire coming in or it's in an incredibly like high pressure situation mm -hmm. does your brain just like turn off and you just start going or do you feel like you're thinking with a lot of clarity and you're just kind of running around like your training kicks in and you just start doing what you need to do for me if i'm being honest i kind of black out and like my training just kind of like kicks in um so in one instance uh we had uh just got some indirect fire and uh, we had to mount up, right? And so I had to put my DBE cam on top of my truck because we drove a Cayman, which is a big old truck thing. And so our DBE, um, it allows us to see at night, so like infrared. So if there's anything mm -hmm. moving or anything like that, we can see. So I'm mounting it. And I remember I looked up and I know it was higher than this, but it looked like if I had stood up, like this thing could have like knocked my helmet off or something along those lines, right? And so as I look up, I see this and um, I see it hit the defect, which is about, I'd say about 100, 200 meters away from us, right? And so the concussion kind of knocks me down. I roll off the truck, right? And I remember uh, Aiden, he yells at me. It sounded like he said, get under the truck is what, it, was what I heard, right? And I was like, get under right. the truck, what? He's like, no, get in the truck. I'm, I'm making a G-rated what he said. But he right, right. <laughs> <laughs> He told me to get in the truck. And like, as soon as I got in the truck, you know, I just hopped up on the gun and I was ready to roll, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that. Like you're training just like, you, you know, it's like, I first wild. Second and then, then, then immediately, you know? And I, I didn't really realize what had actually happened until after you come down off that high and like you, you analyze mm -hmm. everything, you know? All that adrenaline kind of yeah. comes down, wears off a little bit. Yeah. Did <laughs> you, or do you feel like, well, so. I'm sorry, what'd you say? I said it's different for each soldier as well, right? So, like, some people right. do that. Some people, I mean, it's just, like, instinct. Like, doesn't even, like, the freeze or anything like that. They just automatically just go into it, you know? So, yeah. Huh. So, did you or do you feel like a lot of the people that maybe you were with actually come back and, and struggle a lot with PTSD? Do you feel like that's something that's incredibly prevalent? Because I feel like you hear about it as a civilian. Mm-hmm. You hear about a lot of soldiers coming back and struggling with PTSD, but I think in some ways PTSD as a civilian is almost kind of like this ethereal thing, right? Like it's difficult to understand and kind of grasp. Um, and I'd like, I'd kind of want to know, I guess, what was your experience like? I guess if you didn't have it, like maybe even people that you were with that you were close with that maybe had or struggled with what PTSD looked like. 
Um, so, and if there's anything about that, that's not, you don't want to talk about, that's totally fine as well. I got you. Um, as far as like my unit, I can't think of anyone that I know of, um, Mm -hmm. or who told me that they had PTSD, if that makes any sense. Right. Um, you know, PTSD is a very thing. It's a, it's a, it's, it's something that you have to admit, right? It's it, you can hold it. Right. Like, so that's called like the that's what they call like the silent killer, right? Because you don't know mm-hmm. unless someone tells you, right? Because um, you could be struggling with it and not even know that you're actually struggling with it, right? Um, and so for the longest time, there was like this mentality, like in the military, of being strong, right? So like during like Vietnam mm-hmm. and uh, World War One or World War Two, they called it shell shock, right? Um, and so you were seen as weak if you came and you needed to see if you need to seek mental health or something along those lines. Um, going down a rabbit hole here, but bear with me. Hmm. No, 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 it's fine. Go ahead. It's um, a long format show. You got all the time <laughs> in the world. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, now like the military is starting to they're, they're starting to realize that, right, that it's not it's not a weakness thing. Like they they stopped the whole like you're weak. Now they encourage you to go seek that help. Right. So like when we got back. We actually had to talk to a psychiatrist or a shrink. Um, I don't like mm-hmm. that word. Um, yeah. Don't like that word. Um, but yeah, we had to, uh, we had to talk with one of them and they kind of coached us, like talked to us about, you know, um, transitioning back from the, the combat zone in which you were in, into the civilian life. Hey, you know, you're, you're going to be angry. You're going to see these things, yada, yada, yada. This is how to, this is how to deal with it. Right. And if you need anything, here's the resource in which you, here's the resources and things that are, that are available out there to you. Right. Um, they started right. to focus on resiliency and things of that in nature, how to bounce back, not only with like PTSD, but just say that you get in trouble in the military or something along those lines. Right. That resilience is like, mm-hmm. okay, cool. You own up to what you did. You come back stronger, better than what you, you learn from, you learn from your mistake and you come back stronger. Right. So. Right. Yeah, I hope that answers right. the question. No, no, yeah, yeah, that does. That's that's awesome. Honestly, I mean, it's great to hear that like they have things like that set up now because I know that, that wasn't in place in the past for the yeah. longest time. So and that's I think encouraging. Those are the that's best good. things in the world, right? I mean, I think that there's always room for improvement. Um, so I don't, right. wanna, I don't want to do that because I mean, there are there are some soldiers out there who who really do struggle with uh, with PTSD who've been right. in like some situations where it was like life or death, and you know. Um, and they, they, they struggle with that, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So you get back, all right, from, I guess now we're back from Korea. Okay. So what, um, what did you do after that? What did your, you transition, I guess, back into civilian life? What does that look like? No, once I got back from Korea, the big army sent me to Fort Hood. Sent me to Fort Hood, Texas. Good old Fort Hood. I tell you. Everything's bigger in Texas. Hey, I tell you, H-E-B, Whataburger, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I love Texas. Love it. Yeah. Love it. It's the second best state in the United States, right? Right behind South Carolina, all right? Good old Palmetto State, baby. You can't beat that. I tell you. <laughs> so how was your time in Texas? What all were you doing there? Um, so I was actually very fortunate in Texas that my sister was stationed at Fort Texas at Fort Texas. At Fort Hood as well. <laughs> Fort Hood. Um yeah. so uh, at the time she was a captain and like uh she um, had just had uh, my niece Juliana and uh, her and her husband were living there. And so I was actually able to like live with her. So I didn't have to live in the barracks, which was really, really nice. So, I mean, coming home every day and she would cook and everything like that. So that was, that was really nice. So um, yeah, before it was really good. I mean, I would say that was probably um, as far as like the union leadership wise, probably the best leadership that I had, like in the military uh, made me second guess kind of coming off active duty. Um, I had a uh, platoon sergeant, Ashley, McDo- Ashley McDougal, 
and uh, he was just great, really cared about the soldiers and making sure we were taken care of and things of that nature. Um, I mean, one of the best platoon sergeants I had, uh, hands down. So yeah, yeah, I had a good that's experience. Awesome. Had a good experience. I was only there for about, I'd say almost a year or so um, before gotcha. I transitioned uh, into civilian life. But yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, it is amazing how much good leadership can make or break an experience. It doesn't matter if it's in the military, if it's in a job, having people that are above you that are managing you and leading you well, that are quality, that care for you and yeah. lead out from example, it makes an unbelievable difference really in your experience and whatever you're doing. It really does. Yeah. So, all right, you, you transitioned out of active duty. Where you, I'm guessing this is now where our stories start to converge a little bit right there in Columbia. Oh, yeah. So tried to go to Liberty because I did Liberty University online, tried to go to Liberty. I was like, mm, I don't think Liberty is for me. So ended up coming back, tried to enroll in the, uh, at the University of South Carolina. They were like, hey, you got to have 24 credits in order to transfer over. I'm like, well, I only have like 12. So I had to go. Gotta love that. <laughs> I tell you, uh, with a 3.5 GPA, um, had to go to Midlands Tech for, I was there for about, I was there for a semester or so um, and had to take some classes, some business class and things of that nature they wanted me to have in order to transfer over. Uh, did that and I uh, enrolled at the University of South Carolina and this is when our lives. Boom, uh, converge. Yeah. Go Gamecocks. Bringing people together since 1801. <laughs> Cool. So, uh, did you, you were business, right? Were you a business major or were you poli sci? Yeah. So I started off as poli sci. I did. I started okay. Okay. I couldn't remember. And I remember I took one poli sci class and I was like, no, 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 <laughs> this is not what I want to do. Not what I want to do. It was, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like the, uh, it was, uh, it was poly 101. I learned like uh, some really cool stuff, right? Um, some mm -hmm. theories that I still see to like to this day, like the principal agent theory and all these other type of theories, how I kind of see them still working like today, like in, in like my daily life and, and at work and things of that nature. But I was just like, no, 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 yeah. no. Not what you want to do. Not what I want. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was on that business school too. Good old Darla Moore business school. Darling. I had a, I appreciate my education. Looking back on that for sure. I really do. I really do. So, um, I, I guess a little bit of, um, after that, I guess, what did you do? What, what, what was your goal when you were leaving college? Like what exactly was it that you wanted to do? Did you want to go, you know, work for, you know, some type of, you know, any type of, uh, that I guess consulting that you're doing right now, or what was the goal when you decided to leave from college? So the goal when I left college, uh, honestly, was just to stay in South Carolina um, and I, I guess pretty much climb the political ladder, per se. Mm -hmm. um, I was ready to, uh, I just graduated. I was working for First Tuesday Strategies at the time. Um, and what is what is that? What's it's First a, Tuesday it's a political consulting company in, uh, okay. in Columbia. Um, and um, I was working there for a little bit. And then uh, I remember they put me on a... Um, they had put me on a, uh, an assignment. They wanted me to go down to uh, Hartsville to a town hall with Tom Rice. And um, at the time, we were doing some work on the border adjustment tax, right, is what we were doing. And they wanted me to ask a question. So I went to this town hall. You know how town halls are. Everyone's like, you know, pop yeah. hole in front of my building, in front of my roadies to be done. My mailbox is too, yada, 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 right? Right, right. So everyone's, just like, <laughs> everyone's complaining. Um, nothing against town halls. I think they do serve a purpose. Um, especially here. Give me my, give me my start. 
Right. So he asked, does anybody else have any questions? So I raised my hand and I was like, hey, Congressman, my name is Stenson Rogers. I'm a student at the University of South Carolina. Just have a question about the border adjustment tax. You know, I was like, hey, you know, uh, we understand like the good it'll do. However, you know, taxes will be raised by 10 percent um, in in and as a cause of that, you know, price and things of that nature are going to rise. Like, how do you see that affecting, like, the great state of South Carolina, right? And he was just, like, mm-hmm. flabbergasted that someone asked him a question. Because he's a big tax guy. That someone asked him, like, right. a tax question, right? And so, like, he looked at me for, like, two seconds. He goes, I'm going to get to your question. But, hey, how about our Gamecocks, man? Aren't they doing amazing? <laughs> <laughs> Standard politician. <laughs> Aren't they doing an amazing job? And then he comes back and he goes, listen, I understand. I've read the reports. He goes, I don't like it, but it's needed. And he went to explain as to why it's needed, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, all right, cool. So got the information I needed and I'm ready to, I'm I'm getting ready to leave, right? And then uh, Tara Davis uh, comes, who was the uh, scheduler for Tom Rice, comes and like tracks me down. And she was like, hey, when you to the congressman, so the congressman comes over, introduced me to him. And he's like, hey, you asked a really good question. We have a paid internship in D.C. We'd love to have you, um, you know, talk with Tara and we, we'll get you set up. And I was like, all right, cool. So right. I left. <laughs> right. <laughs> I left. It was pretty much kind of like a job offering. Mm-hmm. Right. Never thought. That's about- a good day. Yeah. If you can walk in and ask one question and leave with a job offer, then obviously it was a good question. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. So anyway, I'm calling, I'm calling, I'm letting people know, Hey, I got the information. Also got a job offer to go work for him for in the summer. And there was like, Oh, you should go do it. You should do it. You're young. Now's time to do it. If you wait till later, you probably won't do it. And I was like, all right, cool. Well, I was like, well, me, I was like, I want to, I don't want to, this is a paid internship. I don't want to come in there and be kind of like half cocked or sideways. I want to know what I'm talking about. So um, right. my friend Suzanne gave me a call and she's like, hey, you know, I'm working for this congressman. We'd love to bring you on as an intern. Um, so Suzanne uh, got me up here to D.C. And so I worked for this congressman for about two months or so. And then I moved over to uh, Tom Rice's office as a, uh, as a paid intern. And I was there for about... I'd say two to three weeks, maybe, uh, mm-hmm. before I quit. Now, here's the reason why I quit. I got an offer to go spend about two weeks in uh, Turkey for free. Well, it's tough to turn that down. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'll be honest. That's that's difficult. Yeah, it, 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 it's it's you know. And uh, so the story behind that is that when you're on the Hill, uh, these uh, companies and universities, they come and they have what, what we call receptions and things where they come, they tell you about the organization, yada, yada, yada. So we're at this organization, we're at this uh, reception with Bashir University, and they're telling talking about, you know, the Turkish and uh, U.S. Um, uh, relations, right? And they're like, hey, if any of you guys would love to host, host you in, uh, in, we'd love to host you in Turkey, just let us know, uh, uh, fill out the clipboard in the back and we'd love, we'll, we'll reach out to you. We'd love to have you. And I was like, all right, cool. I was like, I'll just fill out this clipboard. It's not going to happen. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, they, uh, one in a million they, chance. They they're, about, they're, about, they're about to spam the heck out of me with their universe. Right. Right. I'm just going to get a bunch of emails. <laughs> so I get a call a week later from this lady and she's like, Hey, thank you so much for attending. Uh, you said that you were interested in coming to Bishop University. Um, you know, pretty much like we, we'd love to have you. 
Um, let me get your information and we'll send you a plane ticket. I was like, all right, cool. So I give my information a week later, there is a plane ticket in my inbox, a plane ticket in my inbox, man, they move fast over in Turkey. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> Apparently the Turkish are like, listen, you said you're coming over. Let's get on. Hey, let's get you on over let's here. Go, let's go. Um, <laughs> and I may be short in that timeline a little bit, but it was very, it was very quick, you know? And, um, so I go to Tara and I was like, Hey, I, uh, going to Turkey for about, for about two, two, three weeks or so. Um, so I'm not too sure how this works, but yeah, I'm just gonna need that. I'm, I'm gonna need that time off. Right. I was like, I was an intern. I was like, I didn't mind asking for the time off. And she right. goes, has it been through ethics? I was like, what is ethics? Like, what is, what is, what is this ethics thing that you right. And she goes, who needs ethics? <laughs> she was like, this has to go through ethics committee, ethics committee. And I was like, how long would that take? She goes, it can take anywhere from three, <laughs> from three weeks. To, I think she said like two weeks to a month working action before it gets approved through, through like ethics. And I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to quit. (laughs) (laughs) So even for an intern to travel and request PTO, it has to go through a full ethics committee. The reason why is because I was a paid intern. I think that if I was unpaid, like I was on their payroll, if I wasn't on their payroll, I could have went no questions asked for the most part. Right. Because I'm not, you know, um, but once they start paying me, that's when it, that's when it, actually, that's not true. I am still beholden. I am still beholden. Um, right. But <laughs> once, once you're paid, there's a different type of system that kind of like kicks in. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so you decided to just quit your job, which could have been an incredibly promising internship so that you could go to Turkey for two weeks. Yes. Well, how was Turkey, I guess? <laughs> well, hang on here. Hang that, on. Been, so that better have I been was, a hell of a trip. I was... <laughs> So I was interviewing at the time as well for full-time employment elsewhere, right? And so I got a, I had interviewed with Senator Scott's office a couple weeks before. And so I went, uh, uh, after I quit, I took a week, I went back. This is Tom Scott out of South Carolina? Tim Scott out of South Carolina, yeah. Or Tim Scott, I'm sorry. I don't know why I said Tom Scott. Tim Scott. Because I said Tom Rice earlier. I get it. No biggie. Uh, It's Um, all up here. (laughs) So um, I go home for a week. Um, this is during the, uh, the lunar eclipse thing. Remember where it went dark in the middle of the day? Yeah, yeah. Everybody was freaking out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Good times. So Suzanne and I, we're in South Carolina. I get a phone call and they offer me the job. They offer me the staff assistant position. I'm like, Oh, this is awesome. Like I'm going to like Cinder Scott's like event down here in Charleston and they just offered me the job. Right. <laughs> right. So I got a job offer and got to meet the senator all on the same day at his event, which was like really, really cool. And this is all after I quit my job with Tom Rice. Right. <laughs> and then I went to Turkey. That's that's a good month. Yep. I'm not gonna lie. That's a solid month. Yes, it was it was it was really good. And um so go to Turkey. Um, and it was, uh, it was a pretty good experience, right? They, I mean, they rolled out the red carpet for us. I mean, put us in up at a really nice hotel, um, paid for everything. I think I spent $10 total the entire, like two weeks I was there. And that was at the, uh, at the, at the bazaar, uh, buying gifts to like bring back and stuff. Um, but it, I mean, it was really cool. I learned a lot about not so much like us Turkish relationships, more about the Syrian refugee crisis that was going on over there. Hmm. Uh, at the time I... I think they were housing about 3.5 million um, refugees or what they like to call their friends. 
Right. Uh, yeah, they're, 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 they're Syrian friends is what they call them. And, you know, I got to talk with uh, some of the, uh, of the Syrians who were there, especially the, like the parents. And one of their concerns for the most part was that they were afraid that, excuse me, their children going up wouldn't have their identity as being Syrian, right? Because they speak, uh, in Syria, they speak Arabic, in Turkey, mm -hmm. they speak Turkish. So in order right. for the kids to go to school, they had to learn the language. And so because they were learning the language and not learning Arabic, they kind of, the parents kind of felt as if they were kind of like losing their identity. They're growing up as Turkish, right. not as Syrian, right? And they all just kind of like want to go back to like their country. But of course, it was unsafe at the time, right? Yeah. Um, I was also able to go to Gaziantep, which is the, um, this about, about a mile and a half or so, I want to say, uh, from the uh, Syrian border, like from the, from the border of, of Syria. Uh, they, have a, they have a camp that was there. And so I was actually able to go there and see the camp that was there. And I mean, um, the camp was actually kind of nice for it being like a, a refugee camp per se, right? Like when we mm -hmm. think about refugee camps, we think of like war-torn buildings and things of that nature. Uh, no, they had turned, uh, kind of like when I was in Iraq, we had what we call uh, chews. They had turned like these 18-wheeler um, these like combat uh, trailer things into like yeah. living uh, into, into uh, livable buildings, right? Um, so mm -hmm. I mean, these people had like a bathroom, they had a kitchen, they had a living room. I mean, like y'all living better than some people in America, like, you know? right, right. <laughs> had their own grocery store, their own school. I mean, it was, it was a really nice, like, um, a really, really nice community, um, that was there. I understand, you know, not, not, not taking away from like the trauma and everything that they went through. Um, but yeah, right. like what, what the, what the Turkish people had done for them, um, was really good. And I don't know if they like dressed that up just because they knew we were coming or, or, or right. whatnot, but you know, uh, from what I saw, it was, uh, it was really, really nice, but yeah. So it was good. That's interesting. It, it, it makes me honestly think a lot about, I think maybe America's response to uh, some of the problems that we have at our southern border right now with people wanting to come up. And obviously that is, there are so many other different nuances to that, oh, yeah. but um, with some of the conditions that you see in pictures, uh, it's uh, pretty heartbreaking, you know? Yeah. And I, I wish that there was a little bit more of this, you know, idea of let's welcome people in as much as we possibly can if they need it, right? Yeah. Um, and those people from Syria desperately needed it. So that's, it's great. It's honestly encouraging to hear that Turkey was willing to do that, open up yeah. their doors. Oh, yeah. But um, so Tim Scott, what were you doing for Tim Scott exactly? So, uh, so Bill Senator Tim Scott, who's he's a smart dude. Hey, firecracker. Yeah, firecracker. Um, I um, so I started off as a staff assistant uh, in the front office, you know, doing all the day to day stuff, um, and then I was staff assistant for about six to eight months or so. Uh, and then I was promoted to LC or legislative correspondent, uh, where I helped on his health, education, labor, and family issues portfolio, uh, as well as aging. Um, and uh, that was kind of cool. Um, so I would respond back to letters. I would take meetings and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And I honestly would say that working for Senator Scott uh, was one of the best experiences that I had being a South Carolinian, um, because I was able to work with South Carolinians. I was able to hear the problems and the issues and the concerns of South Carolinians uh, and actually try to uh, resolve those things, right? Um, right. Especially with it being healthcare, you know. Um, a lot of times they, and uh, all my other LCs, I'll tell you this all. Um, so a lot of times, like, you get a letter and it would talk about, you know, how they are, you know, struggling with such and such, such and such, right? Instead of me sending, like, a letter to them or a form letter, I'd pick up the phone, I'd call. 
be like, hey, I yeah. got a letter here. I just want to, you know, first of all, I'm sorry that you're going through this. This is where we are. Um, you know, the senator is 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 aware of this. Yada yada yada. You know, um, but give yeah. it that that personal touch, right? Because when it comes to healthcare, healthcare is very very uh, personal. Um, it is. It's a, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a, it can be a sensitive topic at the same time, right? Um, so, um, yeah. Fell in love with healthcare. Who would have thought? You know, me, military, right. um, business student. Who would have thought that healthcare would have been my jam? And like, I just kind of like taken off like that right there. Just kind of like launched me into like this career in healthcare. Yeah, that's super cool. I feel like there are so many things that congressmen and women, even at the federal level, that they do that I feel like people have no grasp of. Like, I feel like there's this idea that uh, Tim Scott or Lindsey Graham or, you know, any of these guys are, are basically going up and they're just chilling on Capitol Hill all day and kind of like listening to people talk around, yeah. you know, and they debate a, a, a bill every now and then, you know, but there's so much more that goes into it. Like, it's just, they have entire staffs underneath them that are answering phone calls every day. And like the idea of like, write your Senator, like you should be able to do that. Right. Because that's how you get your point known. But like, that's incredible. That's so much pressure on one person to be able to deal with at all times. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I I really cannot imagine the amount of pressure there. How do you think that, uh, Tim Scott, I guess, dealt with a lot of that. Do you felt like he, I guess, legitimately did care and listen to, you know, a lot of the, I think things that were coming through that y'all were hearing. Oh yeah. Multiple times he would be like, you know, what, where, where, where does South Carolina stand? What are we hearing from our constituents? Yada, yada, yada. Um, so I encourage you, like you do write your, write your Senator, call your Senator. Right. Um, you know, it's, it, it, it really does work. Cause I mean, he would ask, you know, where does South Carolina, you know, where does South Carolina, how is this going to affect South Carolina? How is this going right. to be? Right. And something that a lot of people don't know. Right. They think that, you know, that Republicans and Dems, like we all hate each other, yada, yada, yada. But I would say probably like on a weekly basis or so or anytime there was like big legislation that would come up, um, the entire South Carolina delegation, including Jim Clyburn, they would all go on a call. And this stuff happens right. behind closed doors and they would, they would be like, Hey, how can we, you know, how can we get this across? Yada, 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 yada. What, how can we right. work towards South Carolina? And I think that alone in itself, right. With Jim Clyburn being as uh, powerful and senior as he is within the democratic party, um, right. kind of put South Carolina on the map. I mean, you think about it, like we've had heavy, South Carolina's always had heavy hitters. I mean, we, um, Trey Gowdy, uh, Tim Scott, right. Lindsey Grant, right. um, you know, Mark Stanford, when he, when he was in, um, you know, always had like heavy hitters. And I think it's because of that close relationship or that close knit that we mm. have. Right. So, Oh yeah. I can't forget about Joe Wilson. Right. I was going to say Joe Wilson's a pretty big dude too. Yeah, he's, he's a big, big guy. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's really, really interesting. So, um, why, I guess why healthcare, right? Like, and I think that, um, healthcare is, obviously a very, very hot topic right now, especially in United States politics. And, and it has been for a long time. So like what interests you about it? Why, why, why healthcare? So healthcare never crossed my mind. Like when I thought of healthcare, I was like, okay, I go to my doctor once a year. Check up. Cool, right. <laughs> if that, I need to go to my doctor once a year, I don't even do that. <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of like what I thought. And I'll, I'll never forget this. Uh, Bailey Showborn, who was the L, who was the health LC at the time, he asked me, he goes, Stence, you want to sit in on this meeting with me? And I was like, yeah. And I think it was with MUSC, if I'm not mistaken. And they talked about how they were uh, using 3D printers to create like muscles 
right? They were printing muscles that they were that they were trying to make like functional, right? So say mm -hmm. like you know me being you know a soldier. Um, uh, so you have like an injury, right? Like you were you were hurt and like you lost your leg or, or a muscle, something along those lines. They could 3D print like this muscle and uh, uh, attach it and it'd be a working muscle is what they were trying to like some of the things they were hoping or trying to do, right? And I was like, what? this is crazy. Right? Awesome. That is unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Modern medicine, like there are things, I hear about stuff like that and I'm like, what? Like how? How in the world could anybody think of something like that? They're doing so in healthcare, like especially like in that in that field, they're doing so many like cool things. Now, will the FDA approve them or or, or, or something along those lines or will they actually come to fruition? That's something totally different. But right. I mean they're always working on on something on something, right? And so like, you know, we hear the new mRNA, right? which they're using, which is in the vaccine for, uh, which is in the COVID vaccine, right? This has right. been around for about 40, 50 years or so, which is never approved by the, uh, by the FDA or anything like that. And so right. now this is the first time it's actually been approved as being used. And now they're talking about, you know, using it for like the seasonal flu and other things of that nature. Because as you know, like with the seasonal flu, they choose a vaccine or a strain, which they think which strain would be the most prevalent, right? Whereas with right. this right here with the uh, RNA, they can, um, produce like the protein which will fight the flu that way they don't have to make different variants or try and guess each year it's just for the flu in general and i'm just like Pfft. right it's incredible immunology and virology and i mean the amount of stuff that's happening in the healthcare field at i mean every single day they're discovering new yes. things they're putting more money more research into stuff and I, I mean it goes to show that like there are a lot of people out there that are much smarter than i am <laughs> You Way know, my philosophy being here in D.C. is that every person knows something that you don't. So every person I meet, I try and pick their brain and learn from them. Like, yo, what do you know that I don't know? And if we ain't got time, yo, let me get a business card and we can talk later. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's honestly, that's a great way to be that. I mean, being able to sit down and I also think a big thing that is really missing nowadays is the willingness to learn, mm -hmm. like accepting and admitting the fact that you don't have the answers, right? You don't have the answers. It's okay to sit down and listen to somebody that has much more life experience and knowledge than you do and learn from them, right? Yeah. That's a good thing. Mm -hmm. That's honestly like the whole reason why I started this whole thing, this whole podcast, everything that I'm doing here. Yeah. I want to be able to sit down and talk to people that know a lot more than I do and can just tell me about it, you know? Okay. Uh, and that I feel like that's missing so much nowadays. I think it's actually coming back. I think that like last year, you know, what we saw with, you know, um, with the George Floyd and things of that nature, like it, it forced mm -hmm. us to kind of like sit down and, and learn from each other, right? People who don't look like us uh, right. for the first time in a long time. And I think that we realize how much we can learn from others that we otherwise would not have learned. Like once we get outside of our bubbles and things of that nature. Um, I can't yeah, uh, so the conversation that I've had about, about you know, uh, race relations here in the United States and things of that nature. Right. Um, but yeah. With yeah, that trial is kicking off right now too yeah, this week. It is. It is. What um what all do you think? So obviously that is a very broad question, but um in talking about I guess like everything that happened with George Floyd last year, like mm -hmm. where do you think that things are headed? Like do you think it's an overall positive thing or do you think that you know things have actually gotten worse because I feel like you hear different narratives from different sides, right? Um, if I'm being honest, I think that things have gotten better since then, right? I think that, you know, um, <clears throat> 
I hate that, you know, George Floyd had to lose his life for like this movement to happen. But these things in which are being brought to the surface aren't new things for like uh, the black community or, or minorities or minorities in general. Right. It's just the first time right. that America's kind of hit it head on. Right. It's something that it's not nice to talk about. It's uncomfortable to talk about. We get uncomfortable when we talk about it. Um, but we need to have those uncomfortable conversations in order to grow as as human beings, as Americans. Right. Because right. Americans, you know, America's called a melting pot. We're called a melting pot for a reason, but we need to learn from those people who are around us, right? Um, yeah. And so I think it's I think it's a it's it, it's a positive thing. Like I said, like you know, I've had like a lot of conversations with a lot of people who just who, who just didn't understand, right? Um, you know, I yeah. can tell you, you know, story after story about how you know I was stopped in you know five points once to my brother or coming back from you know South Carolina yeah. or coming back from Spartanburg, going back going down to Columbia, and some of the things like the cops have said and done. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, like you know, people have just been like, you know, Stinson, like you know, I know you that that it's true that it happened to you, yada yada yada. But I was like, yeah, I get it, it happened to me, but like, it's not just me that it's happening to, right, <laughs> like, right, right. It's happening it's happening more than you think um and and there needs to be a change right and i think that uh change is coming right i, th I think that change is coming you I, I think after all that you saw um uh cities and um uh cities and states take like their own action right i think uh, right. i remember the uh i think was it new york who got rid of qualified immunity I'm not too sure. Uh, it might what, be Matthew. Will you look that. Will you check that real quick? Uh, did check uh, which states got rid of qualified immunity? Yeah, there was one. Um, yeah, there was one that got rid of like qualified immunity, and like they're taking I these steps like on their own. You know. Yeah, yeah. I I believe it, qualified immunity. I believe it was. I believe it was New York. Yeah. Um. I so I I will I will agree with you completely, and I also think that like so. Having those conversations about race and about race relations, especially in America, is it is very, very difficult. Yeah. And I think that this, in a weird way, this is going to sound crazy, but I think in a weird way, this opened up conversation almost for a lot of people that are white feeling comfortable enough to go to black brothers and sisters that they had and just be like, how are you feeling? Yeah. Like, what? I don't, I don't know. Like I've got a, one of my, one of my best buds is black and uh good old Edwin. And I, I shot, I, when all of that went down last year, I, I mean, he's in a group message with a couple of us buddies and he's the only black guy in our group message. And every single one of us reached out to him and we're like, what? I, I don't know what to say. And I have no idea how you're feeling right now, but like, I love you. And what do you need to talk? Do you want to talk? Yeah. And I remember him being like, and, and talking about things like this with him since is him being like, I, I really, he has seen so much more conversation like that yeah. happen. Yeah. Um, and it's horrible that it took, you know, almost nine minutes straight of an absolutely horrendous act by a police officer for something like that to occur. But there's no doubt that that has affected the world over, right? Like, I actually did a, I reviewed a lot of the trial, uh, in my podcast, uh, this past Monday. And, um, I think it was something like 2000 cities across the world had protests and over 60 countries. Like it wasn't even just the United States. It was and like the, the whole, the, the whole world. world looked at that and they were like, something's got to change. Like this idea of disliking or looking at someone differently because of their race is archaic. Like yeah. it has got to go. Oh yeah. 
Colorado? Okay. Yeah, but Colorado. My bad. My bad. Yeah, it's not saying any other states at all. Like, I can't find, like, a list or anything. Cool. That works. Yeah. That works. Cool. Um, but, yeah, so uh, I guess what was your perspective on some of what happened last year with George Floyd? Like, I feel like that entire – it almost was like a whirlwind almost. It was like everything happened at the end of May, and everybody was cooped up inside with this with the coronavirus going on and the pandemic mm-hmm. happening. And it was like tensions immediately just flared across the entire country. Like, what was – what was it – well, you were in D.C. at the time, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What was it like? Um, so we'll back up a little bit. So my, my perspective on this is coming from me being a military police officer and me being a black man, right? So I was outraged on both ends watching this video, right? Mm. Because one thing that you were taught is that once the handcuffs are on, the fight is over. The fight right. is over. The fight is over, right? Um, you know, you, you have control at that point, right? You've taken away their most dangerous, their most, cause that's the thing. Like, that's why they, when you're, when you're, when a police officer is like in a situation that become that could become dangerous, they always say, "Let me see your hands. Let me see your hands," because your hands are what are your most dangerous to a police officer are your is the most dangerous thing, right? You can grab, right. Ring, yada yada yada. So like once you're in handcuffs, the fight is over. We're taught that, right? Uh, you can get in trouble. Like at that point, like you're responsible for everything that happens to that individual once they are put in handcuffs, right? They fall and hit their face, you're responsible, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You were in care, you were in there, you were you you were caring for that person. And so seeing that, and then not even knowing that there were like three other cops that were on top of his body at the same time, right? Um, right. You know, I was just, I was just outraged, right? And then, at, and then as, a, as a black man, I was outraged as well, you know? I'm just like, hey, like, this is happening way too much and far too long here in America, right? And so, like, I had a lot of emotions and things that, like, I really couldn't get out. Um, and so, you know, the first couple of days in D.C., it did get kind of rowdy. But on, like, the, the third or fourth day, I went out and I, and I, and I marched, right? Uh, I, marched, mm-hmm. uh, I marched in the streets um, uh, alongside a couple of my other friends. And, uh, you know, I was able to get out a lot of, like, the frustration and things that I actually couldn't uh, put into words. And, like... Um, when I was marching, the things that I saw wasn't violence, right? Like, we got out there, people were handing out waters, they were handing out masks, they were like, yo, make sure you socially distance, like, you know, right. what we're out here for, yada, yada, yada. You know, um, it wasn't really a thing of, like, no one was throwing rocks, no one was getting in anyone's faces right. or anything like that. You know, we encouraged people to come march with us, hey, you know, be an ally, come march with us, but it was none of this, you know, um, kind of like what you see on the media, right? And I think what the media kind of did is took, like, the small thing that was happening kind of blow it up right they didn't show right. you everything else that was that that was happening right um yeah well it was like less than four percent of all of the protests that happened across the united states through the entirety of the black Li- they're coining it the black lives matter movement but i guess that's just the for like the post george floyd protests that happened in 2020 it was something like less than four percent turned to any sort of violence at all yeah right which is astoundingly low like mm-hmm. that's unbelievably low. But if you go on and you you're looking at any news source at all, you look at anything, these were violent protests, right? These were riots. They weren't protests, they were riots. They were riots, and yeah. It's unfortunate because there absolutely of course were places and times where rioting took place or at violence took place, but the vast majority weren't like that. And the vast majority are people that are people that are formerly in the military, right. Or people that are, you know, hardworking, uh, doctors or lawyers, or I I don't working at your local Walmart, I don't know, wherever. And they 
care very much for an issue that affects them personally. And they have the freedom to be able to go out and, you know, protest in that way. And that's really a beautiful thing about America. But um, what was it like, I guess, being boots on the ground during the protests? Like, do you felt like, do you feel like there was an energy that just kind of felt maybe different? Um, yeah, actually, you know, like I said, like I was able to, it was, it was, it was, it was kind of weird in a sense, right? Because like I said, like I had all this built up emotion, you know, being angry and being on like this emotional roller coaster. And there were things that, like I couldn't necessarily like put into words, right? And so me just getting out there and being amongst like, you know, uh, my brothers and allies, my brothers and sisters and allies, right? And we're, we're, we're marching to, to protest us, to, to, to bring awareness to... You still there? I think so. Yeah. I think okay. I think I still got you. <laughs> <laughs> You're all good. I was just like, I I don't know what's going on. I don't know if he froze, but I could still hear him. <laughs> Not like if it went away and then it came back. I was like, what is going on? Um, That's one of one of the joys of, of Zoom calls right there. I tell you. All right. Um but yeah, we were um, to be on the ground and with with the allies, my brothers and sisters and allies, and actually see and, and get those things like I couldn't put into words out, right? And um, it was it was it was it was an amazing energy that was there, right? It wasn't like a, yeah. it wasn't like a weird energy or like you know like what are we doing here? Like everyone knew like why we were there, um, and we were there like not to cause like uh, any like disruption or anything like that. Like we were doing this to bring awareness to this issue, right? And history has shown that, you know, unfortunately, the only time in history where America actually listens to, you know, the black community is when we riot and march, right? I mean, you look at mm-hmm. like the 60s and things of that nature, like the only time that America has actually listened is when that happens. You know, you look at, I mean, Rodney King, you know, Martin Luther right. King, uh, that's like when when the big changes actually happen and it's unfortunate that someone you know when it comes to like the black community someone has to lose their life and the world actually sees it uh, for anyone to actually bring about change you know um yeah is that, i mean yeah so yeah so what do you think um i guess maybe getting a little more like applicable like what do you think are solid or necessary changes that could take place that could benefit uh or maybe stop things like the George Floyd uh, killing from happening again? Um, you know, the first thing that pops in my head is, you know, just like more training, you know, like more diversity training and things of that nature, right? Like, so like, I know it's different when you go through the police academy versus like the MP school and things of that nature, right? right. Um, and so I think there needs to be more emphasis on like that diversity training and things of that nature, right? Like you should know the people uh, that, that, that you're policing, right? Um, not necessarily that, right. that people who are policing should look like their community or something along those lines, but like you should be out there like in the community, right? And I think the DC here in DC, they do a good job at that of, of having their police force necessarily kind of like look like their community and, and doing like their diversity training and things of that nature. Um, so I think DC does a very, very good job with that. And I think the DC uh, Metro Police has a very good relationship with the neighborhoods within DC, right? Hmm. Um, so I think it comes down to that, um, you know, just the training, you know, I could go into like, you know, um, um, the pros and cons of getting rid of like qualified immunity, you know, getting rid right. of holes and no knock warrants and all this other type of stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, it just comes down to being aware of the people that, that you interact with, right? Like, and not having like this negative perception, um, you know, of a certain person or something along those lines, right? You know, now right. you see- Based upon, especially the color of their skin. It's yeah. ridiculous. 
Uh, I mean, now you you know we we see the rise in in uh, in uh, in hate crimes against Asians, right? You know, I watched a video the other day of this man kicked this sixty five year old lady. I think she was on her way to church, right? And right. no one did a thing about it. You know, I had a friend here who posted on, you know. Um, um, who, who was uh, telling me that, you know, she had a scary situation on the subway the other day, right, where this man kept following her on the thing. She had to kick him down, and then, no, right. she yelled for help, and no one came, right? And it, it's, 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 it's those things, right? Like, we need to get outside and, 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 and have friends and talk to people who don't look like us to learn about us, to, to learn about that, right? Because at the right. end of the day, you know, obviously I'm black, you're white, Austin, but guess what? We both put our pants on the same way, one leg at a time. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. And if you put your pants on with two legs at a time, I really don't know. Maybe maybe I can't talk to you and be friends yeah, with you. We, we can't be friends. We can't be friends. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what do you, so with, I guess, everything that has happened over, like leading up to this Derek Chauvin trial, like, do you think, depending on the way that this ends up going, do you think that the, there's going to be more protests? Like, do you think that the answer really is to just have conversations or like what, what, what's going to end up happening, I guess, after this next couple of weeks? If I'm being honest, I think it 120% depends on the outcome of this trial. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think that if he is, uh, if the jury finds him guilty, um, I don't think that there will be any protests or anything like that. Uh, I think at that point, you know, uh, there will be like a healthy conversation, yada, yada, yada. And we, we you know, we, we kind of move forward from that. Mm -hmm. However, if he's found not guilty, the black community is going to see that as a slap in the face. It's going to be a right. thing of like the world, the world watched this, right? The world condemned this. We, we marched for, you know, almost five months, right? Um, to protest and to bring awareness you know, to this issue, and then they're going to feel like it's a slap in the face. And I think that you may yeah. see more protest and more, more, more protest and rioting. Yeah. I'd be blown away. I think if he, if he's found not guilty, if he's acquitted, uh, mm -hmm. I'd be blown away if yeah. there wasn't, uh, honestly just as much protests, yeah. uh, after this, uh, as there were last year. Yeah. Uh, I, and justifiably so I think in a lot of ways, and obviously <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. Like I, I'm not, I'm not standing in the law room or in the courtroom. I mean, I'm not on the jury by any stretch, but like it's, it is, I think it's difficult in my mind to be able to make a case for his innocence. Right. Um, yeah. and because of that, it seemed like in so many ways that that video made it seem like it just like a cut and dry. Right. Yeah. It seems like it's just cut and dry. It seems like, all right, we all just watched a murder. Right. Yeah. But that's not always how things play out in a courtroom. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not. And uh, there's no doubt that if he comes out and he's acquitted, the entirety of the black community in, in America is going to be like, what? Like, what do, do we not matter at all? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you know, you bring a good point, you know, do we not matter at all? Right. And so I hear touch on this real quick, you know, like when we say black lives matter, we're not saying that, you know, no other lives matter, What we're saying right. is pretty much all lives can't matter until black lives actually matter. And here in America, what it seems like when it comes to police and things of that nature, that black lives have not mattered. Um, mm. and, and I'll say that again, until black lives matter, you know, all lives can't matter until black lives matter. And that's what that slogan means. It's not a thing of like, Hey, you know, we hate cops or anything like that. It's that, right. Hey, our life is just as precious as yours. And so at the end of the day, and, and you know, a lot of, a lot of the, 
how can I say this? Black people have kind of played the, black people have, have paved the way for a lot of groups here in America, right? Women's rights, you know, the LGBTQ community, uh, minorities and things of that nature, right? All of that has kind of like been built off the works that, you know, the black community has done within the 60s and before that. Yeah, um, yeah, and so absolutely. And, and that's some of the conversations that I'm having as well, right? Like a lot of people, like, you know, you, you know, now there's talk about reparations and things of that nature. I'm just like, guys, like, if you want to, if I'm being honest, I'm only four generations removed from slavery. And people are like, wait, what? I'm like, yeah, slavery didn't happen that long ago. Like Jim Crow right. and things of that nature didn't happen that long ago. Um, if I'm not if I'm being honest, I think that my generation and my family, my first gen my generation is the first generation to be born to where there was no like separation within like the school or uh, 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 segregated schools or things of that nature, right? Because my parents right. were born in the 60s, right? And so we're the first generation to be born to where that wasn't even like a stigma, right? Like me going to school, like, you know, my parents didn't tell me about, you know, hey, you know, um, you know, you're black, they're white, yada, yada, yada. Like we just went, right? We went. Right. And, right. Um, you know, it didn't, we didn't, you know, kids don't care about that, right? You're, you're kind of taught that, right? But kids don't, kids don't care about that, right? Um, you kind of realize, like, as I was growing up that, you know, people kind of saw me a little bit different, you know, as I, as I got older and things of that nature. Um, but yeah, so. So uh, do you well, think, uh, do you think it's a generational thing? Like, do you, do you think that as, uh, like our parents' generation and the generation before them are slowly, and this is going to sound incredibly morbid, but are gone, like, and pass, yeah. Do you think that things get better and they change because of our generation being kind of like growing up and living in the in the oh, yeah. time that they did, you know, because like it, you're totally right. Like when I was in high school or middle school or whatever, like I, I didn't think anything about like it, it didn't matter to me. Like I had plenty of friends that were black and I had friends that were white and like it was just like whatever. We all played basketball and hung out on the weekends just the same. Right. Yeah. Um, but like. Do you think that like with our children now that hopefully we, if we're blessed enough to have them, like we will raise them up to think differently and that will eventually cause racism to subside or move away in some sort or fashion? Oh yeah. 120%. 120%. Cause again, like racism here, we're not that far removed from segregation here in America. Like segregation was in the sixties. Like that was, right. you know, it's, it, we're not that far removed and with, with every generation we, we move further and further away from that. Right. Um, um, you know, um, so yeah, I, I think that our generation, we, we kind of started this and like the next generation, the generation after that is going to pick up the mantle and keep carrying it. Right. Um, cause like, I think about like my grandparents, right. My grandparents growing up in like the deed South, right. You know, they have the way in which they see, you know, white people is completely different based off their experiences. Right. It's right. completely different than the way I see them. Right. And like, I have to respect the way in which they see them because of the experiences in which they went through. Right. My parents, theirs is different as well because they went through a different experience of what I have. And so it's, it, that's, that's, that's what's going to be the change, right? My mom always said, with every generation, it gets better. So, <laughs> Well, I hope that that is true. <laughs> I'm going to hope that your mother is right. <laughs> For sure. Mama's always right. That's right. Uh, you can, if, my, if mom ain't right, nobody's right. Uh, my mom used to say that all the time. <laughs> oh, man. That's funny. So, um, so I... Because they got all them teeth and no toothbrush. It's the Medubla Oblongata. <laughs> what a fantastic movie. I may, maybe I'm going to have to just throw in a quick meme of that real quick when I throw the video up. <laughs> so uh, let me ask you this then. Um, in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement as a whole, I think that 
there are, yes, there are of course like questions around, you know, maybe the, the nuances of the phrase black lives matter. Right. But I think the vast majority of people see and recognize what black lives matter is kind of meaning or trying to say. However, I I do think that there is a, a, a large portion, especially within uh, the leadership of black lives matter that, um, are pushing a, a an ideology and pushing an agenda uh, that is in some ways kind of anti-American. It's very deconstruction, right? Like we kind of want to tear down the foundations of America at its core in order uh, to be able to provide and like force equity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. As opposed to equality, right? Mm-hmm. And um, do you see that or do you think that that is something that uh, is actually taking place within the Black Lives Matter maybe organization as a whole um, or do you think that that's more of you know just kind of like right wing I guess maybe fear mongering about an organization? Gotcha. So with that there's two different things right you have the Black Lives Matter movement right and that's mm-hmm. calling for equality across the board right mm-hmm. and then you have the Black Lives Matter organization which is pushing this anti-American agenda which I don't agree with right i don't agree with that with that agenda at, at all right to to you know rip up the foundation like you were saying like the foundation and redo it yada 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 no that's 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 you know at that point you just turn off almost every single american right um, right however the movement itself um you know w- w- that's that's what i was referring to the movement not the organization yeah. Right? um yeah i i i, I looking at the organization i do see that like i read like their demands after you know all this went down i was like what like this has yeah. nothing to do with what this movement has been has been going about right like the majority uh, i i in my opinion i think the majority of people who who marched you know after the george you know to protest um didn't weren't weren't in a hundred percent agreement with the agenda and the demands which um, the organization asked for, right? And I mean, I can right. go on and on about the organization, but I don't think we got enough time for that. But. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I uh, I will say so. In terms of the movement as a whole, mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter movement, I'm like all for, right? Like, I think this is fantastic. Like the, the ideas and the, the wanting to, the fact that saying the phrase black lives matter can cause a controversy is absolutely unbelievable to me at this point in time. But, um, I I will say like, there are a lot of things within that organization that give me a lot of worry. And I think a lot of it kind of ties into very heavily, like, uh, this whole push and this ideology around critical race theory, and uh, kind of breaking out and in, in, in a lot of ways, almost like differentiating people based upon their race, right? In order to be able to uh, redistribute wealth in whatever way that you want to, or redistribute uh, equity in, in whatever way that you know you would deem as fit as the government. Um, and that, to me, in a lot of ways, is is kind of scary. And I think there's a huge portion of the right that looks at the black lives matter organization and they just associate it with the movement, right? Yeah. They're just like that. The, what the organization is spouting off right now is exactly what the movement stand for stands for. And as a result, I can't get behind it at all. I get that. 
I get that. Well, I will say this. We do have to recognize that wealth in the black community was stripped away, right? I mean, you 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 think about, I mean, you, I don't know, like me growing up in South Carolina, I don't think I learned about like Black Wall Street or anything like that. Like my parents, you know, taught, 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 told me about that and things like that. Like right. there's so many things that happen, you know, um, or even let's even talk about like the death tax, right? So like my, my grand, I, I've had to do some research on like death tax. Like my grandfather just passed away recently. And so like, it was a thing of like, did like the history on it right and like when it was implemented the reason why it was implemented was to kind of like take this land away from black owners right so right. it's a thing of say that your um that your your assets equal about you know a uh, hundred thousand dollars and let's just say that the rate on it is is uh is is, is 20 is 20 percent right so you got to mm -hmm. come up with twenty thousand dollars so that means you don't have twenty thousand you may not have twenty thousand dollars laying around all willy-nilly so what do you do you sell those assets right in order to cover that task and so when you sell those assets the you know i hate seeing it like this but the rich white man would come in and would just buy right. up that land, right and that's why you see things like where they're trying to give like money more money like in the in the covid package whether you agree with or you don't the reason why it's because of one of those reasons, right? Black farmers, um, they were they were they were slighted in that, right? And uh, it's just been a it's just been a thing of like you know wealth in the black community has kind of like been stolen for so for, for so long, right? And I would say nice. that for my parents' generation and my generation, you know, we're actually starting to build like that generational wealth, right? Within the black community, there's this there's this big talk about um, about generational wealth, right? You see a lot more uh, wealthy black men than you have in, in in previous decades and things of that nature, right? We're coming up, right. we're we're going to college, we're getting educated, we're 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 showing that you know we're more than what you see in like a rap video or something along those right. lines, right? You know. Um, or how we're portrayed in like movies and things of that nature. Um, and so it's, it's, um, um, I lost my train of thought there. Uh <laughs> well, I think that, I think that without a doubt, there is an incredible, uh, gap in the amount of wealth that the average black family has compared to the average white family. Oh, yeah. That is 100%. Like there's no way you can refute it, right? There's no way around that. And to think or to make the argument that that is not a result of, hundreds of years of systemized uh, racism, I think is incredibly difficult to make. And I, I think that there is, it's amazing because the things that are talked about the most on the left and on the right are always the extremes. Okay. Yes. Anything that you see on the media are the extremes. So the far right is saying there's no such thing as any sort of institutional or systemic racism at all. Right. And then the far left is saying that everything in America is still so systemically racist that there's no way for any black man or woman to be able to get ahead at all. Neither of those things seem to be true. No. Right. And so there has to be some sort of, okay, there's absolutely still institutional racism in, in some, in some sort of fashion right here in the United States, because if not, there are a lot of, a lot of black people that feel a certain way for just no reason at all. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, at this, but at the same time, it's like, is everything right? Like there, there's, there's still acts that the United States is at the Congress has passed to be able to curve back and push a lot of that. So like America is moving forward in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Uh, there has to be some sort of middle ground there, you know? And that's where, what I call the three P's of, uh, of, uh, of politics, come in right you oh, have the your three p's of politics i want to hear this and i gotta <laughs> i gotta write this down i'm learning something here <laughs> all right so you have your you have it's uh say politics policy and procedure right um so politics are like you were saying you got your extreme left and your extreme right and the messaging in which they do right 
it's all politics yeah. is to get people riled up, to go out and vote for them, to believe that certain thing, right? right? Then you have your policy. Your policy is actually like your legislation, right? So your politics, in a sense, in some way drives uh, your, your policy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have your procedures, and your procedures are how you get the politics in which you talk about to your policy <laughs> into mm-hmm. procedure and how to get that passed. And right. so those are, the, those are the three P's of, of, of politics. That's, that's pretty good. I like that. I'm going to have to, uh, I'm going to have to keep that written down somewhere. <laughs> so, uh, there's a lot of talk, especially from, uh, like, I think that Warnock and Ossoff, John Ossoff out of, uh, Georgia had a lot of, a lot of conversations and they campaigned very, very heavily on wanting to mm-hmm. pass a new civil rights act and a new yeah. voting rights act and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And so we're already, we've already seen that, you know, a new voting rights pa- act has, has passed through or at least through ha- the house, right. Yeah. It'll probably die in the Senate, but it's at least gotten through the house. And there's been a lot of changes around, especially voting rights in Georgia right now with everything that they just passed as well. Do you see the need for, another civil rights type act like we saw in the 1950s and the 1960s in order to repair or change the laws that we have currently in the United States? I would say yes, but not to the extent of what we saw in the 60s, right? Uh, I think there needs to be one because, I mean, there there are a lot more things that, like, we, we've changed. <laughs> we've right. changed so much, right? Uh, between, like, the voting and, you know, um, the uh, the LGBTQ community and things of that nature. Like, we, we need to have another, like, legislation to, like, address these, um, what I would call, I, I don't want to call them, but social issues in a sense, right? Yeah, well, um, I, mean, I think they are. I think that's an apt description. Yeah. Um, and, and we need to have another legislation because if not, like we're not going to know you're going to have states kind of doing like their own thing and yada, yada, yada. Like we need to have like this, um, this foundation of where we move from here, right, is what is what we mm-hmm. need. Um, and I'm not saying that what the Dems in the House passed is the it, it, is it right, right. Um, because from my understanding, um, it was passed with no Republican. Uh, input yeah, it, was, it was strictly partisan. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that's not the answer. Right. Um, and so like we, we need to have both of them come to a table. Right. You know, Joe Biden has said that he's a unifier. OK, sir, here's your chance to unify. Right. You got this claim bill. you're going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you got this bill, sir. Let's see you do it. You got this bill. Where can we go? Where, 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 yeah. where, how, how can we, how can we meet in the middle of this? But yeah. So um, I, that, that's a good question. So like, I guess a good line. Do you, do you see any sort of bipartisanship happening? going forward. Like I I think over the past four years and I've, I've obviously I have no idea what your opinions are of Donald Trump, but Donald Trump without a doubt changed politics. He changed politics in an incredible way. And it seems like, uh, the right is further right and the left is further left. Yes. Um, do you see a, a way for people to be, to be able to reach across the aisle and, and get stuff passed that needs to be passed? in any type of tangible way. I do. I really do. I really do. Um, I think that it's going to take a, um, it's not even going to take bold action because it, it's, it's happening and we just, we, we just don't see it. Right. Um, like I know, like when I was working on the Hill and I was working on this issue, uh, I had to reach out to Elizabeth Warren's office to kind of like get their input on this. Right. Uh, I had other democratic offices that I had to reach across the aisle and actually, you know, Hey, where, where can we meet in the middle on this? Right. And they were coming to us, Hey, you know, your boss is on this right here. Do you think that he'll support this? Yada, yada, yada. So it's happening behind closed doors. It's just not seen.
seen on on television, right? Um, right. You're not seeing it on C-SPAN because, like, that's not what their people want to see, right? Uh, they want to see you being strong on this certain issue, not so much of, hey, Senator Scott, I understand where you're coming from, yada, yada, yada. It's all happening behind closed doors, um, just maybe not to the extent in which we, which we would like to see it, but, I mean, mm -hmm. it, it is happening behind closed doors. Um, so uh, I, do see, uh, I do see a path forward, but it's just going to take someone being bold, right? I mean, you, we don't have... John McCain anymore, who would always, you know, publicly reach across the aisle right. um, and, 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 and do that, right? I think Joe Manchin's kind of being that person now. Right, Joe Manchin uh, or maybe a Mitt Romney. Yeah. Kind of, uh, or Lisa uh, Murkowski. Uh, Kristen Sinema, definitely, right? She reached right. across the aisle. Uh, her and Senator Scott work on a lot of, on, on a lot of legislation together, right? Right. Um, and so it's just going to take that, those, those type of people actually coming together and actually getting it, getting it actually done, right? Yeah. Um, and listening to both sides, right? I, I think yeah. that that's the tough. That's the tough thing. I feel like there's not a lot of that. Yeah. And I mean, over the last like four years, there hasn't been of that, right? We would always say, "Hey, we want to bring you to the table," but you bring us to the table, and then you don't listen to anything that we say, right? Right. Um, you kind of scrap and throw everything out. That you know, you throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. Uh, that's how that saying goes. <laughs> yeah. Can't see the forest through the trees. <laughs> I tell you. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really do. I'm kind of hopeful. Maybe I'm being optimistic here, but I'm kind of hopeful, right? Um, yeah. I think that it's it's the political climate here in D.C. Uh, underneath Trump over four years was very high, right? Your entire day uh, could be changed with however many characters on Twitter, right? One tweet could dictate like your entire day, right? And I think right. that here in D.C., you know, uh, after Trump was out of office, kind of took a, a breath of fresh air, even though a lot of people won't admit it, right? Um, but it was yeah. like a breath of fresh air that like their entire day isn't dictated over a tweet or something along those lines, right? Um, they can actually create strategy and actually stick to, you know, yada, 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 um, versus having to pivot, you know, hey, I have this going on. Oh, wait, Trump said this. We need to put a statement right. out so I have to pivot to this, right? right. Um, it, it's a lot more... Um, uh, concise and controlled, I would say. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, it's not nearly as sporadic, right? I think yeah, that Trump was Trump is known, and I mean, he talks about a lot, like, that's a, he calls it a negotiating strategy of his, right? Or, you know, a business strategy where he is, is constantly changing and moving positions in order to kind of throw off his opponent or throw off people that he would maybe view as his opponent, right? Um, but that, of course, is going to destroy any strategy that anybody underneath you has, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so you would see, you would see like a, you know, a Kaylee McEnany or a Sean Spicer, whenever he was the, you know, when he was standing in the front of everybody, the press secretary, I mean, they would say something and then within 10 minutes, Trump would tweet the exact opposite. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? And they're like, uh. <laughs> kind of like with Lady Haley, Nikki Haley, native South Carolinian, you know, when uh, Trump had, uh, she had come out and said something and then Trump said she's mistaken and her response was, or she's confused and her response was, with all due respect, I don't get confused. And I was right. like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> she did. She fired right back. Cause she was, uh, she was the UN ambassador, I believe, yeah. if I remember correctly. And, uh, it, I can't, oh man, I, I, I wish I knew the exact topic that you're talking about because that was hilarious. And it was all over news everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> he said, she's confused. And she said, no. With all due respect, Mr. President, I don't get confused. I don't get confused. Nikki Haley's a bomb though. 
Cheers. I, dude, Cheers. I want to see, I would love to see, and maybe this is crazy, and this is my me being uh, loving any type of bipartisanship, right? But I would love to see a Nikki Haley Tulsi Gabbard. If I could see that for a 2024 ticket, I would be happy. I mean, if we're talking about reaching across the aisle, I think an amazing ticket would be Nikki Haley and, Kit and Kristen Gildebrand. Ooh, okay. That actually is not bad. Um, Kristen Gildebrand, like her messaging, like, here's the thing. She, her messaging is so good. Like if I didn't know the policy, I'd probably believe her. Yeah. She could, she, I'd be like, yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. We need that today. Like, let's go. That's pretty funny though. Yeah. I can see that though. I can see that. I'm a big Tulsi Gabbard fan though. I I am. I'll admit to it. She's, she's She's the problem for sure. So, uh, what do you think about, uh, Trump talking about putting together the Patriot party? And you think he's going to do it? Is he going to create the first third party in American politics in a very long time that has any sort of decent chance? See, I don't think that it'll work. The reason why I don't think it'll work and it'll do more harm than it will good is because the only thing it's going to do is it's going to split the Republican Party. And if we do that, the Dems will win every election from here on out. Right. No questions right. asked. Right. Um, because the majority of people in America, they vote all, they vote on party lines, not so much like for the candidate per se. Right. Right. I would say the majority of Americans do that. Right. And so if that's the case, you're, 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 you're splitting like the Republican party, right? This isn't, this isn't like the tea party or something along those lines, right? Where the Republican party within themselves, like they all still call themselves Republicans, but where their policy and everything, how they viewed everything kind of changed. Right. But they all still ran on like the Republican ticket by Mm -hmm. you starting this and putting like another, cause I mean, we have so many parties that are out there already you got like the green tea party you got the libertarian party you got the american society party right heck i'm gonna start a party called the stinson party hey everybody's invited <laughs> go right <laughs> let me know when y'all's next meeting is i'll come up <laughs> <laughs> you know um so I, I i don't think i don't think that it's 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 uh it's a good move right uh, and I hope that the uh, Republican Party, um, uh, Ronda McDaniel, that you're able to sit down with Trump and let him know that if you do this, this could be the demise of the Republican Party yeah. uh, and values in which we hold, right? Um, you know, so. Yeah, it's, I, uh, I think you're absolutely right. I do. I, I think that Trump goes out and makes a third party and the Republican Party splits. And, and I do think it, you would literally see the crumbling of the Republican Party, which in a lot of ways, unfortunately, I think you are starting to see right now. Um, in, I think you're kind of seeing it. I think you're more, you're more, we don't know where we're going, right? Because like for the last four years, we've been beholden it to Donald Trump and his, uh, uh, what he says, go like highway, my way or no way type mm-hmm. attitude, right? And so now we're having like to redefine ourselves per se, right? How right. do we... How do we get back to business as normal, but also keep the policies and the um, and, or the America First agenda, which Trump actually pushed, right? And so, like, as a Republican myself, like, I can get behind, like, his economic policy and things of that nature, right? Um, and I think most Republicans can. The thing that most Republicans didn't like is that he just wouldn't shut up, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they didn't like in which he did business. No, I don't think there's a Republican out there who, who would say that like his economic policy or anything like that was, was terrible. Now his foreign policy was a little wonky, right? Oh, um, really? See, I feel like his, I feel like a lot of his foreign policy I thought was decent outside of China. I think maybe in some ways I really liked a lot of his foreign policy. 
See, the reason why it was kind of wonky, because like you said, like he was sporadic, right? Yeah, he would, no, that's a like, fact. And so like if you're with the State Department or with any foreign service or anything like that, like you're moving in this direction. Oh, wait, no, we're not. We're going this way, We're going right? the other way. Yeah. Yeah, we're going the other way, right? Um, and so that's just kind of like how, like why his foreign policy was kind of wonky, right? Because he couldn't stick to one thing and 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 mm. and. and in a sense, kind of see it through, right? Um, because his this how I this how I move, how I use my tactics, yada yada yada, right? Yeah. But at the end of the day, sir, you have to realize that you're the president for uh, eight years max, right? Uh, right. Going to law, unless we're in war times, yada yada yada. Um, <laughs> and countries who will who will, who will wait it out, right? Like right. we see in North Korea, right? North Korea played the game for four years, right? Yeah. And now you're seeing them; they're flipping the script big time. They're going back to their old ways, right? Hundred percent. And we as Americans, we thought that, oh my goodness, like you know, Trump, he has been able to, um, you know, he's the first president to cross over uh, into North Korea. And the the um, DMZ, yeah. yeah. Yeah, go to DMZ, all that type of stuff, and now we're right back where we were, right? Um, in a sense, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So, where do you see the Republican Party going from here? Do you think they shed Trump? Do you think they keep in with a lot of the stuff that Trump has brought and ushered in? Do you think it, it follows more after kind of like more traditional GOP with like a Mitch McConnell, or do you think it becomes more moderate or more extreme? Like, what happens? I think that as a Republican Party, is my opinion, viewers, is my opinion. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All of this is our opinion, right? <laughs> you can take it for what it is. Uh, I think that the Republican Party is going to have to become more modern, right? Because, uh, and the thing that I, policy-wise, Donald Trump pushed the Republican Party uh, and got them onto issues that we otherwise would have never, never even picked up, like criminal justice reform, right? Um, you know, you look at opportunity zones, things of that nature, things that we we, we didn't necessarily, the Republican Party didn't necessarily, wasn't a hot issue, wasn't a hot topic, right. you know, it pushed us in that direction. So when I say like the American First Agenda, those are things in which I'm talking about, and I think those things are here to stay. However, we have to realize that there are a lot of our generation, I think there are a lot of people out there who would identify with the Republican Party, but because Donald Trump was president and it, they, they they wouldn't claim, they don't want to be associated with that, right? Absolutely, um, yeah. And so they would say they were a Democrat or they're libertarian or I'm not either one, yada, yada, yada. But in the day, if you actually talk to him and listen to him, hey, you you have a lot of, you hold a lot of values and ideology that the Republican Party has. Right. Um, and so like, I think that we're going to have to become uh, more moderate in order to keep our generation intact because if not we're going to lose if the republican party doesn't we'll lose our entire generation to the democratic party right yeah. um you know I, I i i think that the reason why you know the republican party the people who vote are, are, are the older generation right and so we've played to them as much as we can and now we have to pivot before it's too late because the dems have done an amazing job at pandering to our generation right that having that empathy um you know telling yeah. things that we care about right because we 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 care more about we care more about our mental health, about our feelings, about our people to our left and to our right, more than we care about, you know, necessarily like making money or this corporation, you know, yada, yada, yada. Like we care right. about those, our generation, I believe, that we care more about those who are around us, right? And we value our friendships and things of that nature uh, more than, in a sense, in a sense here, uh, more than like the previous generation, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, you I, see I would agree change. with that. And I mean, you're seeing things change as well, right? Like more companies now, like you're not, you're seeing kind of pensions in a sense kind of go away. They're moving yeah. to more like 401k type of deal where it's otherwise your own responsibility, right? You're putting those things in, right? Um, we as millennials, we don't stay in a job. I think I read a report that millennials stay in a job for a max of like five years before they're switched to a new job. And oh, see, I read two. I read two years, the max okay. of two. 
We'll say two to five. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go with that. That sounds great. Hey, we'll meet in the middle. Um, yeah, we got a Matthew fact check. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and so like it's a thing of because like our parents' generation, our grandparents, right? You picked a job and you you worked it, right? My dad has worked for Duke Energy for almost thirty years, right? Um, and it hasn't moved. Whereas we as millennials, like we care about like everything else outside of that, right? We care about like what the company's doing outside of like our yeah. world. Yeah. We care about work-life balance, right? And if we're not happy, we can move jobs. And the reason why we can do that is because we're not beholden to a pension anymore, right? You mm-hmm. stay in those jobs because you wanted the pension. Now that you have a 401k and you're responsible for like your own retirement per se. Like, you know, you the, yeah, yeah. You know, I can take this with me. I just say I took that with me, you know, like I'm yeah. not beholden to you, you know? So um, yeah. all that to say, um, I think that uh, the Republican Party, back to your original question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the uh, Republican Party is definitely going to have to move into a more uh, into a more moderate um, moderate uh, 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 space, right? Because we have a lot of Republicans, uh, a lot of Millennials and, and Generation Z who are like, okay, I see where the Republican Party is coming from, and I see where the Democratic Party is coming from. I want to be right here. And so, if the Republican yeah. Party can move close to here, we can pull them in. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I agree. I, I think that. Uh, whichever party is able to push more towards the moderate lane in a better way uh, mm-hmm. is going to be the party that wins the vote of the millennials. Oh yeah, it just is. Uh, the vast majority of the millennials and uh, the especially the Gen X, the generation right before us, and then Gen Z right behind us as well. Uh, the vast majority of them uh, care very much for uh, you know. A, equal rights uh, among all people, whether you're black, right, uh, black, white, or um, Asian or whatever race you are, or whether you're LGBT or Q, like you can, you should be able to have the same rights and protections as everybody else. Uh, Vast majority of millennials kind of all line up on that, I guess maybe more democratic social side, but also the vast majority of, of millennials uh, line up fiscally a bit more conservative. And if the Republican party is able to recognize that and, and move towards that and in a, in a structured way with decent messaging, there's a, there's a gigantic chance of them swooping up a huge portion of the vote. But I don't see them being able to do that with Donald Trump. I think that as long as Donald Trump is associated with the Republican Party, you're you're still going to have be associated with you know election fraud. You're still going to be associated with um, uh, honestly. There's a a lot of uh, racism and, and a lot of white supremacy that's associated with Donald Trump as well. And like. We don't necessarily have to get on the rabbit hole of whether or not Donald Trump is racist, right? We don't have necessarily have to do that, but there's no doubt that he's still associated with it. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, he, I, I don't see how the Republican Party gets, gets the vast majority of Americans to vote again if Donald Trump is either on the ticket or associated with it. Uh, you know, I would go further to say that it, it's going to be until the baby boomers are no longer in, right? Because, I mean, you mm-hmm. think about, like, all the baby boomers, per se, um, who are in who are in Congress now, or maybe even the generation before the baby boomers, right? They all have, like, the, especially on the Republican side, have, like, these, have ties to, like, racism and things of that nature, right? Right. 
like anytime, like, you know, when they talked about changing the name of, uh, of Rayburn, um, you know, because he was like a white supremacist and things of that nature. Right. Right. And, you know, their, their response is, you know, he was a man of his time, yada, yada, yada. Well, in the words of Hamilton, right. We don't, we don't get to dictate how history, how history tells our story. Right. Right. We just hope that we're on the right side of history. Right. And so now in today's society, we know that they were on the wrong side of history. Right. And, you know, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, Emmanuel something. He did, um, uh, don't hate me for saying this, but uh, I watched The Bachelor. And in the tell-all, he had a really good uh, comment. He said, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, he said, you know, uh, all history, history should be remembered, but not all history needs to be celebrated, right? Um, and and I, I, I completely agree with that statement. I think most Americans uh, uh, agree with that as well. Um, and so I, going back to what I was saying, I think that it's going to take until like that, the whole baby boomer generation kind of like leaves Congress for us to become like more moderate, right? Because we're beholden to like these establishments. I mean, you think of like Richard Shelby, Enzi, um, uh, you know, at a time, Strom Thurmond, mm. um, these people who have a, a really, Dick Durbin, who have a really, really strong hold on these parties, Diane Feinstein, like all these people, right. I mean, I can keep I can just, right. yeah, I can just keep going, right? Um, who who have like these strongholds uh, on, on the party because like they're institutions at this point, right? Uh, I think that once you see like in the next like ten years or so when they retire um, and things of that nature, and you see more millennials and more people our age start to run for office and get in office, you'll actually see the party become more moderate. Yeah, yeah, uh, that may very well happen. I think his name is Emmanuel Aco Aco Acho. Yeah. A C H O. That's his last name. Um, he was a football player for a little bit. Yeah. I don't don't know a whole lot about him. I know he was a he was a linebacker. <laughs> yeah. That's all I know. I hate that I had to use a bachelor on here. <laughs> I'm not the biggest fan of the bachelor, but my wife watches it and I watch it with her sometimes. I, I have to. The season was terrible. <laughs> it was not good. It was not good. There's no season that I thought that was good, but this one was particularly bad. Austin, at least you know not to say when a woman or your wife says, hey, I'm falling for you. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, that's rough. (laughs) Thank you for sharing. I appreciate you coming on as a contestant to our show. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, listen, I think that's probably a great place to end it. We can go ahead and just wrap a bow on it right there with The Bachelor. (laughs) I appreciate you so much being willing to come will on you and talk. This rose, sir. I will. I will absolutely accept this rose. <laughs> I appreciate it. Where um where can people find you on social media if you want to give that out? If you don't, you don't have to. Um, uh, on social media, it is all Stinson Rogers. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, uh, and Twitter. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. So at Stinson Rogers. Uh, appreciate you so much for coming on. Honestly, we had some great conversation. I appreciate a lot of your insight into a wide variety of different things. I feel like I could have sat here and talked for another hour and a half. Um, but maybe we can, uh, maybe eventually we can have another coffee date at Immaculate Conception, uh, one of these days down the road. About it. About it. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds great. Sounds great, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on. We will, uh, we'll go ahead and sign it off there. Gotcha. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely, man. See you guys. Thank you for listening to Split the Difference Podcast, written, recorded, and hosted by Austin Taylor. If you're interested in getting in touch with me on Instagram, you can find me at Split the Difference Podcast. I'm on Facebook and YouTube at Split the Difference and on my website at splitthedifference.com. 
Production for the intro and outro music done by Rosewood Records Recording Studio. If you're interested in booking or learning more about them, you can reach them on Facebook or Instagram at Rosewood Records SC or on their website, www.rosewoodrecordssc.com. <laughs>